already on our online. So thank you so much for joining us and thank you, Pierre, for having us as well in this session. Uh, we have 20 minutes together to discuss. We have a lot of things to discuss. But before we do that, um, may I ask you to just like, please introduce yourself and tell us what you do uh, at the World Bank. Okay, sure, Romain. Um, I've been, uh, so I was trained as an engineer and a transport economist, and then I started uh, as a, a transport planner in a French consulting firm, working mainly outside France, and then started uh, working at the World Bank uh, 22 years ago, first in Latin America, then I moved to Africa, uh, working in Madagascar and then Senegal, covering basically all uh, sub-sectors of transport, rail, railways, ports, airports, uh, roads. And eventually I uh, moved to Sydney seven years ago, where I was in charge of the infrastructure portfolio of the World Bank in the region, in the Pacific. And uh, since uh, yeah, the beginning of last year, I'm kind of looking at the quality of our overall uh, portfolio and in charge of uh, a couple of trust funds through which Australia and New Zealand are channeling some uh, support to our projects and our activities. Excellent. So seven years for the Pacific region out of 22 years. Uh, and you mentioned a lot of regions and countries, which is amazing. So it's, it's great to have you because you have a very broad perspective on all those challenges through the bank in different regions. So maybe to start a discussion, um, what are the specifics about the Pacific region that you could compare? You mentioned Madagascar. I know the Pacific, our audience know it's islands. Okay, they're islands. But Madagascar is one as well. You mentioned as well a Latin American region. So how can you explain to us a bit the challenges that, I mean, they're facing the Pacific region for the topic of transport, but also in general with the World Bank? Uh, look, maybe starting from a kind of a general perspective, compared to other regions in the world, what's quite striking is that we're talking about much fewer people um, on a much bigger area. Uh, so the, the countries in the Pacific that probably a bit less than uh, 3 million people spread over an area, which is many times the size of the US or India. Uh, just as an example, Kiribati is spread over 3,000 kilometers from east to west. Wow. And all these countries are very isolated uh, from the rest of the world, uh, very remote, uh, far from the main markets, the main population centers. Everything uh, gets more complicated there because everything is more costly. You need to bring um, like food and, uh, and pretty much everything to these islands. Um, and when you work on these islands, you serve, again, a relatively small population which means that in some countries like Tuvalu, where you have about 10,000 people, it's hard to kind of put together a team where you have an engineer and an economist and a financial management specialist and so on and so forth. So yeah, the main challenges I would say are related to scale and distance and remoteness uh, and then, yeah, isolation basically. And if, uh, yeah, then you ask specifically about transport. Uh -huh. um, I think... Well, the first thing to take into account to realize is that transport is, I mean, everywhere it's key, right? But especially in the Pacific, because of that isolation and the need to import food, the need to, if you want to have access to medical services, you probably need to fly somewhere or at least to take a boat. Even if you want to go to school, sometimes you have to take a boat every day. 
so airports and ports are actually becoming the, the, the literally the lifeline of these countries. Yeah. And some countries just because they need all the imports they get from the rest of the world, others because they're very dependent on tourism. And so without an airport, you can't get anyone from Australia or New Zealand or the rest of the world. Uh, so transport, I would not say it's the most important sector because it doesn't mean anything, but it's definitely very, very important. Um, so one has to take that into account uh, when looking at the specificities of the transport sector in the Pacific. Yeah, I see that. I see that. Um, so you mentioned airports, you mentioned ports. I guess this has to do with, like you mentioned, the scale and the remoteness and the islands. Um, I, I was wondering if we could talk as well on um, the impact of climate change and the importance of resilience vis-à-vis uh, -vis those assets, because there are a few things that our audience may have heard of. Uh, I don't remember if it was not Kiribati, who at one point was discussing the idea to, to have the status of a climate refugee, or there was a sort of a right, uh, an alarm to say, well, uh, the, the sea level is rising, uh, our coasts are, are being impacted, there is coastal erosion that impacts as well the, the roads that are on the coast, but also, I guess, the ports. So is that something that you would say is very important for the region, just looking at resilience? And if so, what are the concrete examples of the projects that they can ad adopt as, as measure to try to, to fight, to mitigate or to adapt uh, from climate change impact? Yeah, well, you're pretty right. Kiribati is probably the best known example of a country in the Pacific suffering from climate change. So it's not just about sea level rise, which is affecting Kiribati because it might well be that in 50 years, Kiribati is not underwater, but not habitable anymore. But so beyond the sea level rise, uh, there are also other aspects uh, related to climate change, like um, uh, freshwater, scarcity of freshwater, because oh, wow. in the, the, the water lenses, there's not that much fresh water anywhere on those islands, but the few that are left are often uh, becoming brackish. So obviously water is a key <laughs> thing yeah. for human yeah. beings. Uh, so it's getting more and more difficult to have access to, um, to fresh water. Then uh, you mentioned as well coastal erosion, definitely because most of the people live right, right next to the shore and most of the infrastructure assets are next to the shore. So it's not so much that the islands are actually shrinking, but the coastline is moving. You look at wow. pictures from the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, and you see that those islands, the shape of these islands have changed. Wow. So where maybe you had a hospital, now it's uh, underwater. Right. And, and at, the, at the last COP, the Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs, I think from Tuvalu, he gave a speech from actually a, um, uh, a location on the island that used to be uh, away from the shore. And he was giving his speech with uh, seawater up to his knees oh, so wow. to, to make people understand through a very uh, strong and, and powerful image that it's actually a real uh, issue. Right. And then uh, if you add to that the droughts, uh, the floods, uh, the floods that are also having a, a health impact. We don't really think about that, but it's not just that your house gets flooded. So uh, it, it, it has um, an impact on uh, waterborne diseases or malaria, yeah. Yeah. Uh, cholera, illnesses like this. Um, and then the increase in the temperature of the water has an impact on coral reefs, uh, so on local fisheries, even, uh, uh, yeah, because this, 
countries are very much dependent in terms of their uh, uh, proteins uh, inputs intake sorry on 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 fish stocks fish. which are maybe growing somewhere but shrinking somewhere else so the impact of climate change uh, can be felt uh, pretty much at every level um, health uh, the cost of maintaining assets the cost of building assets um, and uh, if we look into more specifically into transport as you you, you suggested uh-huh. um, again most of the roads are built right next to the shoreline so when there is some coastal erosion Uh, then a, a section of the road may become very quickly uh, unusable and the road has to be rebuilt uh, further inland, but there's not necessarily a lot of space available for that. Uh, ports are, of course, affected by sea level rise, storm surges, are more expensive as well to maintain and to build. Airports get flooded. Most of the airports I know, like in Kiribati or Tuvalu or Samoa, are built very close to the shore. So you need to protect them through um, seawalls, um, which again are very costly. So yeah. the whole uh, infrastructure, um, yeah, the, the whole set of infrastructure assets is affected. And, and yeah. again, I think what we need to remember, it's, it becomes more costly to build and more costly to, to maintain. maintain. Yeah, I see. Wow. Is, so all of those elements are, are part of adaptation, right? You're basically saying that the because of the way it's set up the old network needs to be protected and it's additional cost i'm I, i'm just wondering if there are but at the same time so we talked about transport but you also mentioned that it has an impact on other sectors on the health uh, fresh water so it's like just human development in general are there other elements besides um adaptation of those assets in transport that the World Bank is doing to try to, you know, help those countries even outside transport? Or is it just, there's not much that can be done besides uh, adaptation? Look, in terms of mitigation, uh, we can do things and some countries are actually very much willing to reduce their emissions, but their emissions are negligible compared to the rest of the world. So when they are asking us to help them, Uh, with their strategy to get more green energy or uh, the main motivation, I think, is to try to lead by example, to ch- shame other countries because they are not doing the right thing. And they say, look, we are relatively poor countries, but we do our part, right? Yeah. We're going to yeah. be the first victims of climate change. We are not responsible for it, but we are still trying to do our best to reduce our own emissions. So it's not going to make a huge impact at the level of the whole planet, but during... Uh, negotiations or international summits like the COP, they can say we're doing our job, right? We're doing yeah. our part. Yeah. So in the energy sector, especially, uh, there are some efforts made to reduce greenhouse gases emissions. But uh, now pretty much every every project we do, even budget support, uh, we try to uh, look at ways of uh, doing something about climate. So okay. not much about mitigation because again, it's not that relevant but always a lot uh, about adaptation. So if we do schools, we're going to make sure that those schools are built according to a building code that make them more resilient to cyclones, right? Okay. Uh, if we do hospitals, same thing. And, and, and maybe we look into ways of fighting a bit better all those illnesses that I mentioned earlier that maybe made worse because of floods and climate change. Um, so yeah, 
we 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 are told, and that's our mandate to whenever we prepare a project to look at it through the lens of climate change and see yeah. how that project, even though it may not be directly related to climate change at first sight, yeah. can do something about climate change. Yeah, I understand. It's a sort of the way you describe it and the way I understand it, it's very much a sort of a future proofing, right? To try to see beyond just the, the lifetime of the asset, but to think about how it's going to be and how you can future-proof the asset, either if it's not directly linked to climate change, but just to, to have a long-term view on how this asset can become and how you can make sure that it's just sustainable through time, right? That's That would be yeah. the idea. So one of the main challenges is that sometimes if you do the math and you look at how much it would cost to future-proof, as you said, yeah. uh, the main island uh, in a given country, uh, you come up with numbers which are actually frightening, right? And it means that uh, 20%, 30% of the GDP or almost the entirety of the government's budget or international wow. aid should go into that. So the big debate now is about, does it, um, and it's a very complicated and very sensitive word, does it make sense to spend so much money into um, resilience or should we at the same time maybe create some sort of sovereign fund helping those countries whenever some islands become just yeah. it just becomes impossible to live there yeah. so that the, 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 their population can move somewhere else and, yeah. uh, and maybe be trained in the right way so that they can uh, sell their skills, maybe in Australia or New Zealand and somewhere else. Yeah. But it's a decision that we can't, of course, uh, the, the, the World Bank is not there to of make course, that huh? call for them. But you will have people who, by just looking at the numbers, say it's just unaffordable. And, and we'd better invest on human capital and make sure that these people, whenever they may have to move, will move in the right conditions. Yeah. Uh, and that was actually one of the uh, mottos, I would say, of one of the, not the former one or the previous one, President of Kiribati, was talking about migrating with dignity. So not migrating when you have no other options and that's the only thing you can do and then you move somewhere yeah. and you can't find a job, but you migrate when you decide to with the right tools for you to adapt to your new place. Uh, because again, climate proofing in some areas may just prove unaffordable in the long term. Yeah, of course, that makes sense. And I guess, I mean, the, the, the region is facing all those challenges and you mentioned it as, uh, of course, that, that is very clear now. But at the same time, um, to try to facilitate what you just described, I guess there is a strong um, network of partners in the region, correct? Because those, those islands have a lot of like things that are stacked against them from the, the scarcity of, of some resources. You mentioned the scale the climate change impact, um, uh, lack of as well sometimes skills within those islands because the population is very little. But at the same time, right, with uh, the World Bank and other partners, uh, I don't know if Australia or New Zealand is involved as well, but there is a sort of, I don't know how to call it, but maybe you can describe it like a, a group of partners that is aligned and trying to support that, that approach. Is that correct? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, no, no it's uh, totally correct. Uh, there are quite a few donors very active in the Pacific. Uh, and I would mention, not by order of priority, right, but definitely Australia and New Zealand, uh, the Asian Development Bank, uh, the World Bank, 
Um, and then even others like uh, like uh, the Urban Union, uh, the uh, the JICA, and uh, the good thing is that at least in the infrastructure sector, from what I can tell, uh, again, I didn't work in Africa, Latin America, uh, the, there's a coordination mechanism, which I think is the best I've ever seen. There is a, right. an agency that's called the Pacific Regional Infrastructure Facility, whereby um, all those donors uh, meet every three or four months in the energy sector, in the transport sector, in the ICT sector, in urban uh, areas. So, and, and that's a kind of a very um, good forum to exchange ideas, uh, to discuss technical issues, to identify projects that then may be picked up by one donor or two donors. There are quite a few projects that I know of or I worked on, which actually were discussed during those meetings. And then uh, someone raises their hands and say, oh, I get this one, we can do it and we'll do it with the ADB. Or... So okay. it's a very uh, efficient coalition mechanism uh, that also provides some technical assistance to countries or capacity building programs. So yeah, there's a lot. If you look at the amount of money that comes from uh, the donors in the Pacific per capita, it's quite high, right? It's much higher. I mean, I've not done the math, but it's significantly yeah. higher than, yeah. than in, in Africa, right? But the needs are huge as well. And, um, and maybe something I did not mention uh, is that, again, so, to take into account, so if you look at the numbers, again, the amount of money per capita that's spent, it's quite high. But on the other hand, you have to take into account that uh, everything is more costly in the Pacific because, like, for example, in Kiribati or Tuvalu, you want to build the road, there is no aggregates, there is no quarry, right? It's wow. an atoll island. So you need to bring everything from Fiji, which wow. is very far away. The transport costs are huge. Then you'll have very few bidders because contractors very often are reluctant uh, to work in these countries, which are far away. The logistics are complicated. It's seen as being a bit risky. So you get few bids. If you get few bids, of course, you get higher prices. Insurance companies are more and more reluctant to cover contracts uh, in these areas because of climate change, mainly. So it's another uh, impact of climate change. Interest costs go up, and then the bids, the bid, bid prices go up as well as a consequence of oh, that. Wow. Uh, contractors are telling us that, uh, yeah, they'd rather um, do work in New Zealand or Australia because it's easier, and then they, they, they know the environment. Their equipment is less exposed to saline uh, environments, yeah. where which is the case in the Pacific. So everything, if you look at the cost of a road per kilometer, or it's much higher in in Kiribati than it would be uh, in uh, definitely in Australia or New Zealand. So big costs as well, uh, very yeah. very high costs, and so that's why it makes sense, I guess, to have many donors involved. Yeah, I understand. The thing that just I find um, a shame, and you mentioned that, is that. There is, there is a huge need, right? Where all those donors organize and you set out or putting a lot of money, especially when you compare per capita in the region. Um, and at the same time, not that many bidders. And actually, that was one of my follow-up questions. I was wondering if, because of the condition, it's difficult to find both consultants and also contractors to work in the region. So you already answered that, but I'm still surprised that even if the prices are higher, meaning that those contractors or compensated for the difficulty in logistics and uh, additional costs, et cetera, um, I would have still thought that contractors, especially if they are based from the region, you mentioned Australia or Southeast Asia, et cetera, there, there is still a sort of a reluctance to, to be engaged or to participate broadly in those projects. Is that correct? 
No, you're fully right. Uh, look, uh, maybe we should make a distinction between consulting services and um, and contractors, works contract. Okay. Consulting services, uh, yeah, again, we get not that many proposals because if you want to be competitive, you have to team up with the local consultants to do the surveys, the all the, the, the whatever has to be done in on site, right? Yeah. And there are very few consulting, local consulting firms. So I say in country X, there may be two or three. So once those two or three have teamed up with a consulting firm from Australia or New Zealand or wherever else, assuming that you need international experience because sometimes the local consultants can do the trade, but not every time, there is no room left or no other local consultants left to team up with for other consultants, right? So you end up with two or three proposals, not that many. Now for works, there is kind of a, a no man's land, I would say, between the small contracts, low value, which can be uh, taken care or which can be done by local contractors. And okay. then the big ones, which may be more than five, 10 million US dollars that are big enough to be attractive for yeah. contractors from uh, overseas. But in, in between, let's say between half a million and three or $5 million, Again, it's too often too big for local contractors and too small for international contractors. So we're struggling with those uh, contracts. So it's all about trying to package them in a way yeah. that maybe bundling pieces of work together, or, or so that it, it, it's it's not going to be left <laughs> hanging with no one yeah. interested either because they the, the, the local contractors are again too small or don't have the capacity, or the foreign contractors see that it's too yeah, just too small for them and they'd rather focus on whatever is available at home yeah, or in some market where it, it's seen as I safer. See. Yeah. So another another challenge in the region and another way that you and with the World Bank has to have to strategize to really adapt to the local condition and, and, and be smart about the strategy to make sure that those projects are implemented and then the benefits really or yielded the beneficiaries. I see that very interesting. Um, Pierre, it's uh, it's uh, incredible, but it's already we're already at the end of the twenty minute session. Um, we covered just a glimpse of uh, I know all your work on your portfolio in the Pacific region. So um, I would love to have you on another session. And our audience, I'm sure, was very interested by everything you shared with us today. So for that, I thank you very much and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks very much, Roman. Happy to have another discussion if needed, when needed. Mm -hmm.